Hi, and welcome to the 50 Shades of Food and Nutrition podcast, hosted by me, Isa Robinson. I'm a registered associate nutritionist, nutritional therapist, and certified intuitive eating counsellor working in private practice based in London. I believe that the way in which we think and feel about food is just as important as what we put on our plates, and that all foods can fit as part of a healthy and balanced diet. When it comes to our health and nutrition, no one size fits all. This podcast aims to get at all the nuances, the cracks and crannies, and the 50 shades of grey when it comes to what it means to practice authentic well-being, hopefully helping us all to feel a little bit more empowered and at ease about our health. Of course, this podcast is purely for educational purposes and not a substitute for proper medical advice and treatment. Right, let's get to it. everyone and welcome back to the 50 shades of food and nutrition podcast i cannot believe this is the penultimate episode of season one it feels like this podcast has had so many ups and downs it's been like a real roller coaster ride for me but i have absolutely loved it and for me actually nothing really beats getting to have these conversations with such incredible and amazing individuals Just to say that if you haven't checked out any of the other episodes, I seriously recommend going back because there are some really good ones and I know that I'm biased, but I, um, you know, love speaking with Evelyn Triboli about intuitive eating and really getting at the nuances there. Um, Laura Thomas on dismantling diet culture. Uh, Last week's episode with Ian or Dr. Wooten was um, one that I learned so much from on the themes of control and so many more there. So if you haven't had a listen back, I recommend it. And also that shameless plug that if you are enjoying the podcast, if you're learning stuff, if you're um yeah just just enjoying then please go to apple Podcasts and drop us a five star review and any feedback you have this really helps more people find out about us but i also read each and every one and continue to take on board your advice and comments so i massively appreciate them this week's episode and guest are no exception um, as I catch up with registered dietitian and one of our very own team members at the Isa Robinson Nutrition Clinic, Jess Ran. And we are going to be talking all things intuitive eating and eating disorder recovery because I think one of the big questions out there, rightly, is can we use intuitive eating in eating disorder recovery? And who better to speak with this about than Jess, a registered dietitian with a passion for helping clients work on supporting their health and well-being in ways that feel meaningful them. And Jess has a special interest in disordered eating, eating disorders and body image. And she spends part of her time working in an eating disorder service in the NHS and the other half of her time working with individuals, giving them one-on-one nutrition support online. Uh, Just to say that Jess and I recorded this back in early March, so some of the context might not necessarily make sense. But without further ado, um, to speak on this topic, here is Jess. So welcome to the podcast, Jess. How are you doing today? I'm really well, thank you. Um, Yeah, I'm really excited to be speaking with you. So thank you so much for having me. 
Oh, it's such a pleasure and so exciting to get to speak with um, a member of the team. And um, I know we've already done our kind of um, coffee and chat this morning for Eating Disorders Awareness Week. So thank you for, um, I guess, having another conversation uh, today as well about some of these um, really important topics. Um, just before we get into our discussion today, I was hoping that you might be able to introduce yourself and perhaps talk a little bit about some of the work that you're doing and things that you're up to. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, so um, I am a registered dietitian um, working partly in the NHS in an eating disorders service um, and now doing some private work alongside that, working one-to-one -one with clients predominantly working with people um, on eating disorder recovery and recovery from chronic dieting and working on intuitive eating. Um, and I guess aside from work, not that there's an awful lot else going on at the moment um, in the world, but um, I, yeah, I'm living in Gloucestershire um, in the countryside. So I uh, was pretty pleased to have moved out, felt fortunate to have moved out of London um, before the lockdown last year. So basically I've just been sort of trying to explore that area, um, albeit a little bit hampered by the fact that we keep going into lockdown. Yeah, yeah I should probably say, because I'm not quite sure at the exact time this will be released, we're kind of early March 2021 um, and we've got that end date insight, but still, yeah, very much in in a lockdown at the moment and nice to hear that you um will have all the excitement of discovering more about Gloucestershire or, or the countryside when hopefully we're out in not too long yeah definitely yeah and Jess you know you and I met um actually quite a while back and I think it was actually at the body image training that we both did um, but we also kind of um, met a couple of times and um, went for a couple of coffees when you were working at the London Centre for Intuitive Eating uh, with Laura Thomas. And you were just talking there perhaps about um, NHS and private practice and how you balance the two. But I'd be really kind of curious to hear about um, how you went from studying dietetics and becoming a dietitian to working in private practice and in intuitive eating and kind of what that was, what that was like, um, because I know that's maybe um, a bit of a, a different path to, to lots of dietitians at the beginning of, of their journey. Mm, yeah, no, for sure. And I think, um, so I studied nutrition and dietetics as an undergraduate. Um, so I pretty much went straight from school. I did have a, a year off, um, mainly because I wasn't planning on it, but mainly because I initially tried to get into medical school, didn't actually thank goodness I didn't because I think I was just sort of pursuing that path thinking I want to work in healthcare I don't really know what else I want to do um, so I'm quite grateful for having that enforced pause and break and then applying to dietetics um, and then whilst I was studying dietetics um, I think I didn't go in with the greatest relationship with food. I think I sort of part of my intention of going and studying nutrition um, probably was to try and find the perfect way of eating or the perfect diet plan, um, for example. And obviously, as a lot of us do, when we actually start studying nutrition, you kind of realize that actually that's not 
the reality of the course. Um, mm. But also, I think I was still sort of feeling like there was something more um, that I could explore. Maybe there was a little piece that was kind of missing with that. And, and I think particularly related to my own relationship with food. Um, and that's when I, I think I must have actually gone to a, a talk um, that was being run by the Rooted Project, um, mm. who are two dietitians, um, Helen West and Rosie Saunt. And Laura Thomas was actually one of the panelists. Um, and she, I don't think she was even really talking hugely about intuitive eating on that panel, but I just kind of followed everyone um, who was talking that evening and started listening to her podcast and things. And I remember the first podcast that really kind of blew my mind was her podcast with Linda Bacon, talking about health at every size. And I actually remember listening to that podcast and then thinking, there is no way this is true. I just, I was completely baffled because it felt so sort of um, different. It turned everything on its head in terms of um, focusing I'd always been taught in the weight-centric um, model of healthcare, which most of us are at university, um, that the intention is to help people to lose weight or um, obtain a sort of quote-unquote healthy weight. Um, and that's always one of the goals. Mm. Um, and that podcast was obviously talking about how that's not really very accurate and we, we can't... Um, draw parallels between someone's health and their weight and all of that kind of thing so and I think sort of then reading the health at every size book and then the intuitive eating book I really realized that that felt like the missing piece of the puzzle in terms of I'd realized that through working on placements as well that an awful lot of people really struggled um, with feeling very guilty about eating certain foods and or feeling like they were never eating quite right um, and I could really see that there was a huge amount of benefit to that approach of intuitive eating and the non-diet approach. Um, so I guess that's sort of why I really became very interested in it was because I kind of realized that there was so much benefit to it. Um, and yes, then when I finished uni, I went to work um, with Laura. I was so fortunate to um, to be able to do that um, and really sort of specialise and hone um, my skills in working with people on their relationship with food um, and really supporting them with that. Yeah, oh my gosh, Jess, thank you so much for, for sharing that and sharing your kind of journey and, and it's so kind of interesting to hear how your relationship with food maybe changed across that time as you discovered these new um, paradigms or, or ways of, of thinking about health and ways of uh, relating to food and how food fit, fits in with all parts of our lives um, and it was just so funny there I was thinking about that Ruta project talk and I'm pretty sure I was there as well which is really funny because we definitely didn't know each other then and I think it was on gut health actually um, or, or something to do with with the gut because I think that's what Laura did her PhD on, something to do with that. Um, and I just um, kind of related so much to your experience of, of finding those two books in particular 
that you mentioned, the Intuitive Eating book um, by Evelyn Tribbley and Elise Rash, and also the Health at Every Size book by Lindo Bacon, and it almost being this like penny drop, like mm. mind blown, you know, how can this be true when, when all we've been taught is in this weight-centric paradigm where, mm -hmm. you know, so much of, of health is, we, the weight-centric program mm -hmm. promotes almost health through mm. loss of weight rather than thinking about promoting health outside mm -hmm. of that. Yeah. Um, so, so interesting to hear about your journey there. And, and also what really stuck out to me is that the first time you listened to that podcast, what came up for you was this can't be true. Mm. Um, because I think that um, perhaps when um, individuals come across this work for the first time or they hear about it, there can be that sense of, of maybe discomfort or denial. I, I don't know. Um, how long did it kind of take for you or, or how did you move through that um, sense of this isn't true the first time you came across it? I think that's a really important stage for most people to go through because I think it makes so much sense um, to feel quite shocked and I guess confronted by some of the principles of health at every size or intuitive eating because they're so radical compared to what we've sort of understood and known and it's not just sort of learned through our time at university like our attitudes about weight and health have been ingrained within us to varying degrees of course but they've been ingrained within us throughout our childhood and living within this culture because that is the general culture that all of us are living in mm. is one of diet culture that sort of promotes this thin ideal um and and I think it can be it can be confronting it can be confusing um, and I think also something that I spent an awful lot of time thinking about um, from my perspective is also actually it's really uncomfortable to recognize the privilege that we've held even though we have struggled with our relationships with food um, I have still always been lived within a straight-sized body and I think that's part of the discomfort as well for a lot of folks is recognizing and having your eyes open to that as well um, and that can be such a, a tricky part of exploring um, health at every size in particular I think um, is actually recognizing that you're not in the well it's unlikely that you're in the body that you are purely because you have great quote-unquote willpower mm -hmm. um or that you've tried really hard or that you've done all the right things in terms of nutrition and health and and exercise and that kind of thing i think once i kind of really acknowledge that and acknowledge that there are so many other things that play into someone's body weight and shape and size that really sort of I felt like that really sort of lifted the curtain on things um, in terms of realizing that it's not about individual responsibility um, in the way that we've been made to think it is. Yeah thank you for, for sharing that and um, 
I guess really thinking about how it's not um, it's so much more than behaviors that impact our overall well-being or our physical appearance mm. that, that's actually a very very small part and opening up for things like privilege genetics um, all of those other factors of social determinants of health that so often get left out of conversations around health and particularly when we see government promoted sort of behavioral change campaigns that really really overlook that yeah. um, which is so problematic um, so really kind of thinking about how it's so much more complex um, and perhaps having our eyes open to our privileges and and I liked what you said about that doesn't mean that you know it's been a smooth ride in terms of our relationships with food um, and also acknowledging privilege in there despite of that. Mm. And that can be tough to do, um, for sure. So just, just um, segueing a little bit, you now work um, kind of part-time in the NHS um, in eating disorders. Um, what's that been like in comparison to maybe working in private practice? Mm. That's, um, yeah, it's been really interesting. It's been, um, it's been interesting and it's been great to go back into the NHS or go into the NHS as a member of, um, like a member of staff rather than as a student. Um, I think, I, to be completely honest, the, a big th factor that, um, that played into that was actually that I wanted to relocate out of London. <laughs> um, so I, sort of was looking for jobs um, in sort of um, the area that I wanted to live in um, and included NHS work. And I was lucky enough to find um, an eating disorders service that was looking for a dietitian, and I got the job there. So, um, but I think it's been super interesting to see and understand a little bit more about NHS eating disorders services. Um, because it was something that um, I was hearing a lot about, particularly working in private practice. I maybe had en ended up working with um, some people who had been through NHS eating disorders services um, and were kind of coming out the other end or a few years later, were looking for a little bit of extra support and things. So it was really interesting um, to start working in the, in the NHS. Um, I will say, however, that I didn't get very many months of my actual normal job um, because as soon as the pandemic hit, mm. the whole way that we were working as a service completely changed. And um, I don't think it's a, um, a secret that eating disorders services and other mental health services across the UK have experienced an enormous surge mm. of referrals and um, people reaching out for support over this last year, um, which makes a huge amount of sense to me. Mm. And I kind of can't believe that, I don't think that we, we didn't think it was coming, but I just don't feel like it was planned for. Yeah. Um, in terms of, uh, sort of when the government were making lots of, um, of sort of plans to help people 
supposedly get through this year. Um, I don't feel like mental health was spoken about early enough. And obviously now it is, it is in the news that there's such an increase in eating disorders, referrals um, and that kind of thing. But I think, um, I think that's something that we're potentially going to see going forward as well for a little while, even after we potentially open up and are able to get back to our more sort of quote normal lives. Yeah, completely. And, and um, it strikes me as really interesting that we've been seeing the prevalence globally of eating disorders. Um, I think the research shows that it doubled between 2008 and 2018. So we've been seeing that um, kind of going up and up and up anyway. Mm. And then the global pandemic just being a massive um, trigger for mm -hmm for eating disorders, whether that was kind of relapse or new onset eating disorders. And I totally agree with what you were saying there about mental health not being spoken about early enough and perhaps kind of that support for, for people not there soon enough. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we've seen, we've kind of seen a perfect storm as well in terms of um, people who are maybe at risk of or have an eating disorder or a difficult relationship with food in that a lot of our social connections um, have been really affected and people are feeling much more isolated. We all, to differing effects, but we've all had a real sense of feeling very out of control in terms of, or life feeling very out of control um, in that we haven't been able to like even schedule things as we might usually do because we just don't know what's gonna be happening in a couple of months time, for example. Um, but you've, we've had all of that going on alongside this horrendous rhetoric around um, losing weight. Yeah. And, um, dieting messages coming through from the government. Mm, which yeah. just doesn't make sense to me at all. It doesn't feel, um, very sort of in tune with actually what's going on on the ground level um and also it doesn't feel like that's a very sort of helpful way to help people take care of themselves at the moment oh i couldn't agree more and um messages coming from the government i think also on social media the amount of um you know home workouts like the obsession with you know changes to our body weight and shape being the sort of worst thing that can happen in in a global pandemic but it's just so problematic and stigmatizing and unhelpful mm. um to i think exactly as you say promoting well-being and self-care across the board um so i just you know i, I think this could actually be a, a conversation for like a whole a whole nother episode because there's so much here in in how this pandemic will have influenced eating disorders and mental health with all of that surge of, of these messages, as you were saying. And I think it will be so interesting and, and perhaps heartbreaking as well to look back in a couple of years and reflect and, and see the damage of some of these sorts of interventions and, as you say, rhetorics that are harmful. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So just, I'm, I'm kind of um, thinking, you know, as, as we have this conversation, it's so interesting, you're kind of like the, the best place person to have a conversation with this about. 
But what I was really hoping to chat a little bit, bit about is intuitive eating and the principles of intuitive eating and are they relevant to eating disorder recovery? Because I guess you've been working um, for the London Centre of Intuitive Eating and now you're in um, kind of an NHS service um, and that sort of um, eating disorder treatment pathway that somebody might find themselves on. Um, I was just curious to, I guess, hear from you if you feel as though the intuitive eating principles are relevant to eating disorder recovery. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And I think it's one that actually often comes up um, quite a lot when, particularly amongst professionals, when you're discussing intuitive eating. Um, and I think initially, um, or first of all, I think the, um, the underlying sort of spirit of intuitive eating, I suppose, is so relevant to eating disorder recovery. Um, because we're trying to get to a place where we trust our bodies a little bit more and we aren't quite so judgmental of our, the way that we relate to food and the way that we eat. We're learning skills to be able to take care of our bodies um, from, you know, from a, a, a true place of um, looking out for ourselves rather than something that's based upon a diet plan or um, aiming to, to restrict our food intake. So I think they align really nicely together. Um, but of course, and I'm, I'm wondering what you think about this too, is it, but I think the, the principles of intuitive eating, um, I think we can kind of draw from them in ED recovery. And in fact, we do. I mean, there's there's lots that we would work on with someone within the process of intuitive eating, which is actually sort of um, been informed by CBT, for example, or um, other sort of areas of eating disorder recovery. So they do align fairly well, but I, I tend to sort of almost use intuitive eating as a lens through which to support someone um, with ED recovery because some of the principles we might want to leave until a little bit later than we might usually if someone didn't have an eating disorder um, but again as well we might want to bring in some elements like gentle nutrition a little bit sooner and it might be a bit more of a, that we take a bit more of a structured approach with someone with an eating disorder um, to really sort of basically feel like we're building the scaffolding up around them a little bit more than we might do with, um, if, we would, if we were approaching intuitive eating without an eating disorder. Yeah, I absolutely love that and I agree wholeheartedly. And I really like some of the language that you used there um, that intuitive eating can be kind of like, we can look at eating, eating disorder recovery through the lens of intuitive eating and that the underlying spirit of intuitive eating is, is so relevant. And I think something that I personally love about intuitive eating is that there is so much nuance in there. Mm. Um, and I think that's why, you know, when, when we're talking about intuitive eating, it's so important that kind of we're on the same page that we are referring to the kind of 10 principles that are a self-care framework approach to eating um, that 
um, have been kind of originally coined by Evelyn Trivoli and Elise Rash. And of course, there are lots of, of books that have come out on this. And um, I'm so glad that there are. Um, but we're not just talking about this kind of, oh, I'm just eating intuitively. I just decided to switch into that from one day to the next. That there's mm -hmm. so, so much nuance. And I think when it comes to eating disorder recovery, then it's about looking at the sort of bare bones of, of what that principle is and then the nuance within that and how that might be helpful and helpful to an individual in their own journey. Mm -hmm. um, so for example, one I really kind of think about perhaps is um, hunger and kind of thinking about kind of honoring hunger and what hunger feels like in the body. And they're already New, there's already nuance in that principle of you know it's not the hunger and fullness diet that mm -hmm. you know it's normal to eat when we're not hungry and sometimes we eat for practical reasons and sometimes for emotional reasons and that also it's really important to consider self-care in that and so in eating disorder recovery where we know that those signals might be a bit offline or a bit more skewed where might we be looking more to kind of gentle awareness or even just the self-care aspect within that principle rather than kind of thinking of it in very black or white terms mm. yeah I think that's absolutely right and I think the the key behind um sort of honoring your hunger and that principle of intuitive eating really is making sure that you are nourishing your body adequately um, and for someone who maybe has, um, they, they are getting hunger signals, uh, but maybe they've been ignoring them or they've, you know, they've been eating sort of less so they're not quite honoring their hunger. You might kind of go straight in with, okay, let's, let's work on really recognizing and tuning into those hunger signals and, um, and making sure that, you know, figuring out what you need, um, more or less to eat to honor those hunger signals but for someone who um, maybe isn't noticing their hunger quite so much whether that's because of an eating disorder or even people who have been chronic diet dieting for many many years can sometimes start this process and just go well I never feel hungry mm. um, maybe that's where instead of waiting around for these elusive hunger signals to actually show up we might actually bring in a more structured eating pattern first to make sure that we are more likely to be nourishing the body as it needs to be. Um, and that in and of itself can help the hunger signals to, to start coming back, partly because the body will be more likely to have the energy to actually produce those hunger signals in the first place. <laughs> um, but also because we're now nourishing our body in a more regular fashion, um, those that the body knows that when it sends out those hunger signals, it's actually going to be responded to. Um, so we don't always have to wait around for, for people to be able to, to detect their hunger signals before we actually have that conversation. Totally. And I love the way that we're really thinking about how it's so it's going to be so dependent on the individual that it's not like, um, you know, you rework all of the intuitive eating principles um, to somebody that might be in eating disorder recovery, but it's always about the nuance and how the principles can be that lens, perhaps, that we can look through or mm -hmm. 
in, in helping somebody. You mentioned gentle nutrition as, as one that we might bring in right from the get-go in terms of supporting somebody with that scaffolding around eating. I, I think sometimes some psychoeducation can be really empowering there, um, mm-hmm. like actually really thinking about, you know, when a food group like carbohydrates have been so demonized, mm-hmm. um, actually really looking at all of the benefits of those kinds of food groups. I'm curious about any other principles that you might think may be relevant right from the get-go. Um, I think that really sort of um, understanding the culture and the mentality that comes with the diet culture can be so helpful in eating disorder recovery. Um, I think it can be really challenging and like you you use the word nuance earlier on in the conversation and I think it's a really overused word but it's so so important because um, I think sometimes when I talk about this sometimes people get the idea that I think that eating disorders are solely caused by diet culture Mm. um, and that's absolutely not the case however I think it can be really helpful for the majority of individuals with an eating disorder to understand that we are living in a culture which encourages disordered eating. Um, so this, you know, it helps with the understanding of, um, I can, you know, from my perspective, I can really appreciate why um, people really struggle to actually know what is more likely to be enough for them to eat or Um, to understand why it's maybe not helpful for the body to be constantly exercising, um, for example. Um, But also, I think within that principle, we can start to sort of bring in some of the understanding from the wider sort of non-diet community of the health at every size principles. We can help people to start piecing together the wider sort of societal issues that are maybe contributing to that mentality. Um, so, yeah, I think that's probably one of the really useful ones to, to have a think about. Um, and also a key part of ED recovery is, is making peace with food. Um, and that's one of them, or really two, I think they go very hand in hand, don't they? Um, the challenging the food police and um, making peace with food, the two principles, I think that they are such an important part of ED recovery and often have to happen quite quickly, um, particularly if we're needing to introduce foods that have been very fearful um, for someone quite quickly. Um, I think it's really important to give people some skills to use in terms of challenging some of those, um, those thoughts around food. Yeah, absolutely. I sometimes think of this um, challenging the food police might sometimes be like challenging that eating disorder voice that um, some people can kind of feel like is in their heads that it can be sometimes acknowledging that and challenging that and having the skills to maybe push back on that Mm -hmm. um, as as their sort of food police, as it were. Um, And then exactly as you said, making peace with food, I think in eating disorder recovery is, is so important. And I think that's, that could be very different um, to perhaps somebody that is embarking on intuitive eating 
when they've perhaps been a chronic dieter because there is a lot more haste perhaps to be encouraging some of the encouraging in some of those fear foods um, particularly if they span big groups of foods um, that we kind of know are going to be essential to getting enough food and mm-hmm. kind of regular adequate eating because the nature of the eating disorder will be to have lots of those foods and just I think we were just saying just this morning how bad foods can kind of snowball so one thing becomes many many foods and perhaps thinking about you know going to that principle sooner than we might otherwise in intuitive eating if we were kind of embarking on that journey outside of an eating disorder Mm. Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely yeah and I think um just to give an example I think one of the main food groups that um people that I've worked with in the past with ED recovery feel very fearful about or can feel very fearful about is carbohydrates or your grain and potato foods and um not at all to suggest that people who um, are recovering from chronic dieting might not also feel this way but when it's kind of linked with an eating disorder and particularly when someone's wanting to do some psychological work around the eating disorder too it's so important to help that person get those carbohydrate foods back into their eating pattern um, to really make sure that we're actually nourishing the brain Mm. to be able to do more psychological work um, to to actually start exploring your relationship with self and um, and all of that kind of thing because those carbohydrates are the brain's preferred energy source so if it feels starved of that it's it is very difficult it predisposes the brain to that sort of black and white thinking um, so that's kind of an example of where we might bring in that gentle nutrition much much quicker yeah absolutely that brain is a glucose hungry organ mm. um one that um comes up for me i think that um again is can be kind of one that we might include at the beginning is this idea of satisfaction and pleasure in eating um and i think for individuals um, in eating disorder recovery, food can kind of not be this very pleasurable experience. You know, it might be swapping out kind of, I don't know, like a delicious hot chocolate to kind of like a watery, like not very nice one, or that, you know, that eating for pleasure might be associated with a lot of shame or something we shouldn't be doing. And even, you know, if we can't quite get get there yet, some conversations around how integral pleasure is to our eating experience and how also um, kind of how that's baked into our our DNA uh, Mm. as human beings. I don't know what your thoughts are on that one. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think this can, this this conversation can also, for some people, segue into sort of fears or worries around almost food addiction and I feel like we won't stray too far into that conversation because I feel like that's a whole podcast in and of itself (laughs) but I think that that's often a worry that comes up for a lot of people is this idea of well if I enjoy food isn't that bad Um, and I think that's where we it's so helpful to talk about um, how those pleasure centers in the brain and those pathways 
are literally there so that we do enjoy food and we gain pleasure from it just as um, they're there for other behaviors which promote the survival of the human species mm-hmm. <laughs> um, such as you know social connection with other people um, sex etc if we think about humans as a just as a species um, they're all mega important in ensuring our survival um, so I think sort of even just acknowledging that that relationship between food and pleasure is meant to be there um, is it can be so important um, but I think sometimes as well it can be really helpful to acknowledge that pleasure around food or pleasure around eating food without any form of guilt or other difficult feelings that come up it doesn't need to happen overnight and it probably won't um and I think sometimes removing that expectation as well that we're expect suddenly expecting people to all of a sudden really enjoy food um is can be can be helpful to just even acknowledge as well you know we can practice that we can practice um being able to like you said have a hot chocolate in the first time it might actually feel just so anxiety provoking that you don't even get to acknowledge whether you liked it or not totally um but i think it's it's really about practice and, and exposure um and actually um one of my my clients taught me um this sort of acronym or this little phrase which is um save yourself and I don't know where this has come from because I think um another one of her previous clinicians sort of mentioned it to her first but the save stands for structure adequacy variety and then enjoyment and and I think that I really liked that because I think it really helped to kind of break things down into a stepwise approach where really a lot of the time our um, priority is to help someone get some structure back in place in terms of a regular, a bit more of a regular eating pattern. Um, and then, you know, looking at, is this likely to be enough for you? So that adequacy, um, and then the variety and bringing in some of those different foods and things that we've maybe not had for a little while or not had before. Um, and then we can explore you know, fully explore and work on enjoyment. Um, and I think sort of helping people to break that down so that we're not sort of expecting them to almost climb this huge mountain of deriving pleasure from food straight away can be so helpful. Yeah, I so agree. And um, I love that our clients are often our greatest teachers. And I think that that's such a um, great little phrase, save yourself. Um, and also managing that that expectation that it doesn't happen overnight and exactly as you said maybe it just brings up so much in in those moments that we first uh, reintroduce that food that it it doesn't necessarily feel pleasurable at all Um, and I guess something that we might also hold and that I think can be helpful is just that if you have found food pleasurable in the past that that's not kind of this greedy abnormal thing where there's something wrong with you that 
actually universally we are all designed as you were saying to take pleasure with food and if, even if that's not our reality right now and that's totally okay um perhaps acknowledging that and validating that so we're not fearful of regaining pleasure back or that or kind of that being a, a greedy or shameful thing mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and i think it's actually um i read an article with one of the authors of intuitive eating and i can't remember whether it was um evelyn or elise but they were actually saying you know what a um what a gift it is to be able to um gain pleasure from food and enjoy food because it is one of the most accessible um sort of forms of pleasure for us um so if that you know it like you said it's not something that we should feel guilty about yeah uh i say like that 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 gift of of being able to obtain pleasure from food and and also perhaps what this might speak to is also obtaining pleasure from experiences that are around food as well whether that's um going for a coffee and a cake with a friend or it's um, a date with a partner or it's um christmas or another religious tradition that often so many of these experiences around connection or love or um uh, religion can happen around food as well and that might be um, another aspect of pleasure we may derive from it. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So we've spoken about some of the principles we might um, kind of be able to hold in mind, um, again, as this kind of lens um, to, to view recovery in. I'm curious about any principles that we think we might want to be a little bit more cautious about moving into or one somewhere we might want to think about really kind of being mindful about looking for that nuance? Mm. I think the two that jump to mind um, straight away are um, sort of tuning into your fullness and the sort of principle on exercise um, mm -hmm. or movement. Um, I think the thing with fullness is um, Initially, and I will openly kind of acknowledge this with clients, the eating disorder has probably got very skewed ideas of what is um, enough to eat. Mm -hmm. And it makes sort of listening to your fullness um, quite a, a tricky thing because as well as that sort of um, psychological element of of always sort of judging how much is enough. Um, there are also some sort of physical um, symptoms and side effects that come from an eating disorder, which can also hamper um, sort of the ability to trust those feelings of fullness. So um, particularly if someone's been uh, engaging in a lot of restrictive eating, um, you can feel very, rather full very quickly um, to begin with. So sometimes we kind of, we actually need to acknowledge that and, and help people sit, sit with that, those feelings of discomfort, because that's not a sign that they've eaten too much. Um, it's, it's often a sign that their body isn't used to having 
a more sort of quote normal amount of food um and if we sort of came to try and use those feelings of fullness as um in, an indication that we've had enough to eat we will probably be under fueling mm. um, and undernourishing. so that's one of the the principles that i really tend to hold off bringing in until much later in the process um, and i don't know what you think about the fullness sort of principle um, in ed recovery is a I couldn't agree with you more. I think because we know the impacts of restriction on our physiology um, and how that can perhaps result in feelings of early satiety. And perhaps um, if somebody is distressed around food and eating, the impacts just perhaps of, of that stress or on the digestive system, um, blood flowing away from the gut, uh, et cetera. We wanna be really careful um, that we don't inadvertently promote underfueling. Um, and again, I think with intuitive eating in general, however it applies, we're really thinking about self-care and what is the kind of most caring way I can I can look after myself through food. And also um, the kind of the mind as well as the body and, and using the mind in this kind of like logical, rational, self-caring way that maybe for a general person, they might think, oh, um, you know, I'm feeling full, um, but actually, you know, when they think think back, they might think actually, no, but this isn't enough. So, you know, maybe I'll, I'll make sure I come back and eat something in, in half an hour, or I'm gonna have a little mm. bit more um, because, you know, I, I need to be taking care of myself or, or maybe because I'm gonna be on a long car journey and I might not mm. have food for a while. So there's all of these elements that play into it, but certainly in eating disorder recovery, being more cautious about that one or, or kind of not going into it in the early stages. But I think in, in general as well, with thinking about fullness, we have to look at making peace with food. We have to look at hunger. Um, and so often it can be a principle that might resolve itself anyway. Mm. Um, and something else that's just so important, I think, is that it's not about being perfect. Like, oh, um, I'm kind of this perfect level of comfortable fullness. So I'm going to stop eating now. And that's what I quote unquote should do. Yeah. Um, that it's also normal and part of our human experience to eat past the point of comfortable fullness sometimes. Mm -hmm. I think part of recovery and intuitive eating is also being able to, to know that that's sometimes going to happen and, and maybe it doesn't feel all that good, but it's going to pass and we're not terrible people and we can get back to um, eating regularly and consistently afterwards and our, and our body will do its thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that last point um, there around, you know, even if you do end up eating past the point of comfortable fullness, um, how are you going to take care of yourself? Because I think the, often for a lot of people, the automatic sort of action after that might be to restrict then either the next meal time or the next day um, or to over exercise or engage in purging behaviors for example um, and I think that intuitive eating as well can really help like you said to almost switch that on its head um, mm -hmm. and almost um, reconsider sort of actually how can I take care of myself now what can I do to look after myself and keep myself kind of on this track 
of recovery. Um, I think in, in um, a lot of sort of more traditional ED recovery um, work, it's often known as acting opposite. Mm. Yeah, um, action. Yeah, and, and actually that's, you know, that's really what we're talking about there is the, you know, the, the uh, automatic thought or action might be to restrict when we've come from a place of, um, of chronic dieting or um, a restrict element of restriction in our eating disorder. Um, but actually, how can we sort of take a step back and think, how can I take care of myself and continue to nourish myself? Yeah, so kind of powerful, this self-care element, this self-kindness element. And it's and funny how it can often be the opposite of not just what an eating disorder is telling us, but also, again, what this culture tells us about how we should behave in terms of caring for food and our bodies. Yeah, definitely. You also mentioned that we might want to be mindful with the movement principle. And I was hoping you might be able to speak to this a little bit. Mm. And I think that um, it's kind of interesting that actually movement features quite late on in the process of intuitive eating anyway. Um, often because, um, not all the time, but it can become very sort of tied up and linked with people's dieting patterns um, and so you know it can often go hand in hand with with trying to restrict or change their bodies um, or doing exercise or movement from a place of wanting to lose weight um, for example um, so it's actually you know it's not just if I'm working with someone with an eating disorder that I would be thinking about keeping discussions around sort of gentle or enjoyable movement until later on in the process but I think particularly if you're working with someone um, on ED recovery who has maybe had a really challenging relationship with exercise um, it can be really powerful to either stop entirely or completely sort of um, dial that down mm. partly so that we don't kind of continue um, entrenching that as a coping strategy or a, a way of kind of managing with difficult feelings and emotions around food um, and, and we kind of try and and help to gently sort of reduce that down as a, as a sort of compensatory mechanism um, but also it can be really important particularly if we're working on weight restoration or trying to get someone's periods back yeah. um, to really think about movement um and really think about sort of redressing that relationship with movement yeah uh so important um and i think having that pause and that break uh can be so healing um and i'm really glad that you mentioned periods there because i think it's just not something that's talked enough about how um you know sometimes this really intense um and compulsive exercise uh, which again really promoted in in our culture mm. um, is kind of can be a really significant underlying factor in in amenorrhea and I'm certainly seeing more and more of that um, mm. Jess I don't know about you mm -hmm. and I don't think um, 
the the interesting thing is and that i've started really noticing recently is that i don't think that people even need to be engaging in incredibly high levels of excessive exercise mm -hmm. and i i know that that's a very subjective term to use and i really don't want to um give examples of, of minutes or miles or whatever um but what i'm really really no starting to notice is that um a lot of people that I'm working with or have worked with are really kind of actually saying, you know, but I'm doing same as my friends and they haven't lost their periods or, um, you know, or I'm doing the same as, as what so-and-so has recommended. Um, but we know that actually if um, there's a lot of genetic um, influence here, but also if your body is detecting that it's not getting enough energy to do all of its basic functions as well as whatever movement you're doing, mm. then we need to have a think about that. I completely agree. And, and I think it's not just in, in athletes either. We're seeing this more and more. It's not to say that movement is, is bad or that the pause has to be like a really long thing, but also perhaps um, reclaiming back movement as well and what we associate as being sort of quote-unquote kind of enough movement or what counts um, to really be thinking about what is actually really enjoyable. Um, mm -hmm. You know, maybe that's ice skating or it's gardening or it's just like, you know, being in bed in the morning and just having a really good stretch as you yawn and feeling like the joy of that movement in your body um, there as well. So I think that's why um, perhaps having that pause and then being able to really reclaim movement and mm -hmm. define what feels like joyful movement for you and your body in that process of recovery when the time is right uh, can be really empowering as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, I just got one out of time because I know that we, um, uh, I know that you have to, to be somewhere, but I just wanted to bring up one more um, principle if that's all right. And I was wondering about the principle of respecting your body because I think you know body image is is something that is so important in the discussions around eating disorder recovery um and again I think we could have a whole podcast episode on this and it was it's been really exciting as part of this season to also speak to um Vicky Bellman uh from Concentric Counseling on the topic of body image but I'm curious about, again, anything that you might speak to in terms, in terms of this. And, and I'm wondering a little bit, particularly about individuals that might be going through weight restoration and body image and body image concerns. Not that, that, that they will be exclusively the ones to experience that, but I would, I would be curious to hear about that. I think that the, a lot of what I, tend to talk to people about or try and open up the discussion about is this idea of um, body acceptance or just acceptance of the, situ the situation that you're in right now or how things are at the moment and that sound, might sound a bit nebulous but what I mean is that um, I think because it's great that body positivity um, has become sort of much more common in our vernacular and we're seeing much more of it in sort of mainstream media and things but I think it can also give this impression of um, 
we've you know we should all be there we should all be in a place where we we don't hate our bodies and in fact we actually love our bodies um and like you said i think that can be so challenging for um people at a variety of stages in recovery from an eating disorder or chronic dieting um and actually maybe have sort of starting to cultivate this idea of okay even if i don't love my body right now and all of the time am i able to at least sort of um take care of it or do the things that i need to do for it to continue um taking care of me in terms of if you're studying um at uni for example you know what do i need to do to kind of take care of my body so i'm able to get up and go to uni and do my studying um or go to placement for example um so i think that sort of um more sort of neutral um element can be so such a sort of um a great place to start um and i think also acknowledging that our body image can change and it can fluctuate and we're not trying to get to this sort of utopian place where we spend every single day thinking how great our body is the whole time um but instead you know it's it's about acknowledging that some days we might feel a bit weird in our bodies or our bodies might do things that we don't love um or we might just feel kind of a bit nonplussed by it um and that that's normal and that's okay um and just as our kind of our mood and our emotions fluctuate so can our body image mm. yeah absolutely i think um that fluctuation part is so important and it's so interesting that how our perception of our body can be changing all of the time um and almost a sense of because our body image actually registers in kind of nine areas of the brain and it's so interlinked with our emotions our thoughts our feelings our circumstances that that kind of the way in which we perceive our bodies are kind of ever changing as our bodies also ever change um like our skin cells turn over and and we we kind of grow and um hairs might fall out and regrow and, and all these ways that our body changes and i think um, what the research kind of shows is that individuals with eating disorders are um, kind of have a, a particularly hard time in perceiving their bodies. And so this sense of perhaps how can I take care of my body and kind of it's not about reaching that destination in terms of, as you said, like, oh, you know, I now love my body and, and tick, that's done. But kind of acknowledging how a body image is going to fluctuate our bodies are going to change and how can I respond kindly to myself and take care of myself as that happens even if actually I don't necessarily love my body in that moment yeah. um well Jess this has been such a thought-provoking discussion and um I think you know it, it is interesting how much we can apply so much from the framework of intuitive eating to eating disorder recovery um and perhaps you know in that there's principles that we might go to first and there's others that we might think about wanting to be a little bit more cautious with um i am curious if there is anything that you would like to 
leave listeners with. I know that this week is Eating Disorders Awareness Week. Um, so anything um, from you, perhaps, in terms of stuff that's come out of this week or, or this discussion today? Um, I mean, I know that a, well, something that's come up actually a couple of times just this week um, with people that I've been working with is this real sense of that I don't fit that typical um, sort of image of someone with an eating disorder. So I don't know how I have one or I don't feel like I've, I've got one. And I think that has really sort of ingrained within, within me even further the importance of Eating Disorders Awareness Week um, in terms of really sort of working hard to challenge that sort of stereotype of, of who does suffer or experience an eating disorder um, and really sort of helping people to feel less alone in their experience. Um, so I think in, in that I, I would really like people to know that they're not alone um, and that there are other people out there like them, but also there are people out there who are really ready and waiting to help you with your relationship with food. Yeah, um, thank you so much for that. Um, that, um, as you said, no, there is no one look or stereotype of an eating disorder. Um, and, you know, regardless of whether it's a, a clinical diagnosis or you just feel like you're struggling a little bit, you are, are worthy and deserving of support. Jess, do you want to let everyone know where they can find you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly. So I am on Instagram and Twitter um, at Jess Ran Nutrition. I can't promise that I'll be that active, I'm afraid, but that's where you can find me. Um, and you can also um, email me at jess at isarobinsonnutrition.co.uk if you sort of ever wanted to get in touch about potentially having some support or working with someone um, on your relationship with food. Amazing. Jess, thank you so much for this. Um, I think it's been such a thought-provoking discussion and I really hope that we get to do it again soon. Thanks so much for having me. All right, speak soon. Bye. Bye. So that was Jess on eating disorders and intuitive eating. And I really loved how Jess outlined how we might be able to use elements of intuitive eating as a framework in eating disorder recovery. And which principles might be helpful to explore potentially right from the get-go and which we might need to approach with caution. I especially loved Jess's acronym, Save Yourself, thinking about having structure, adequacy, variety, and enjoyment when it comes to food. If you'd like to find out a little bit more about Jess, you can find out about her over on Instagram, JessRanRD. And if you want to find out a little bit more about intuitive eating, I also highly recommend Evelyn Tribbley and Elise Brush's fourth edition book. And I think as intuitive eating has gained popularity, sometimes what it's really about can be diluted. So it might really be worth getting your hands on the original copy of the book, or you can check out the episode, episode that I did with Evelyn, which was the first episode of this season. 
Um, thank you so much again for tuning into this episode. I will be back next week with the last of season one. Can you believe it? And just to give a little taster of what's to come, we are going to be talking all things orthorexia and when healthy eating goes too far. I so hope to catch up with you then. Bye.